This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. We're in Acts chapter 21, and if you would, just turn to verse 27. Paul and the team have made it back to Jerusalem. It's the time of Pentecost, and it gets really kind of hairy right here. So verse 27 of Acts 21 I'll read this, you follow along uh, on your phone and your copy of God's Word or on the screen here. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as the uproar, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them, him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps. He was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. A fun day in the life of Paul. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. There's a phrase that has been around for quite some time. You probably heard it. It's a quotation. It says, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. Have you ever heard that? Do you have any idea who said that? This is interactive. You can talk back. Who? An old person. Thank you, Chastity. Thank you, Chastity. Chastity, uh, just for that, move to Texas, right? I think they're, when are you, when are you guys moving to Texas? January 8th. January 8th. All right. Well, keep talking like that. Might be January 1st. You know, <laughs> old person. Anybody, any idea who said that? Someone said Churchill. I've heard that too. No, but Yes. There's a lot of, I looked it up. There's a book out that I I have a copy of. It's called, uh, Hemingway didn't say that. And it's a whole book about quotations that we have used and said for years and and we think we know who said it. So here's the fact. Uh, A lot of people will say that Mark Twain said this. Uh, And it's it's attributed to Mark Twain that he said it in 1919, which is amazing because he died in 1910. But if you were to kind of research this, you'll discover that Uh, Apparently, Winston Churchill said it, Mark Twain said it, Thomas Jefferson said it, um, Charles Spurgeon probably said it, Jonathan Swift said it. Here's the answer to a quote about lying and telling the truth. No one knows who actually said it first, and so everybody's lying about it because we're not quite sure who said it, right? We're not quite sure who said that, but whether Churchill or Spurgeon or or even uh, Mark Twain ever said it, uh, it does ring true. It seems that Lies and rumors and stories and conspiracy theories don't need a lot of effort to fuel their spread. I mean, they move pretty quickly. And I think that's part of our human nature to be drawn to such conspiracy stories and lies and sensationalism. 
I look at this section in the book of Acts and I see Paul with all intents of connecting with the church in Jerusalem and as a completed Jew celebrating the feast of Pentecost at this time. He's hoping to reconnect. And he is embroiled in a rumor fest that is not of his making, but ends in a riot. He was concerned about getting into Jerusalem anyway during this time because he was going to engage with the Christians in the church of Jerusalem who were predominantly completed Jews. So these are Jews who have historically uh, studied the law and the Torah and the reading of the prophets and have surrendered their lives to Jesus as Messiah, understanding him to be the fulfillment of all that and the completion of the law. And so that's who he's gathering with, but when he comes in, he knows that his mission field has been a a diversely different people group than the group that are gathering as the church in Jerusalem. And so he has been reaching out to the Ephesians and to the Corinthians and to all these Gentiles throughout the world at that time, the Mediterranean region. And he's even bringing with him an offering from the Gentiles the Gentile brothers and sisters in their churches to the church in Jerusalem because of the great need they have. And as we talked about last week, one of his greatest concerns was that the Jewish believers would not receive the gift because it came from Gentile believers. Even though they knew that now we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, there was a history of division and there continued to be at some level. But Paul was relieved because they received the gift. And yet it was very clear that there was tension still there, at least within the hearts and souls of those within the church. But what's happening here is that he did not expect this to take place. What's happened is tragic. It was a blatant attack founded on anger and hatred and fueled by lies. A group of Jews from Asia, most likely Asia Minor, the modern nation of Turkey, have been worshiping at the temple during this feast of Pentecost, and they see Paul. And they see Paul, and they stir up a crowd, and it says they lay hands on him. Now, Paul had previously had hands laid upon him, but that was in the church in Antioch for a totally different reason. As the church gathered around Paul and Barnabas, it says they laid hands on them and prayed for them and sent them out on mission. And they were sent out on mission after having had hands laid upon them. But this group of people are hoping to lay hands on him, not to send him on a mission, just to send him out of this world. They're done with him. They're, they're, They're afraid of him. And the lies are what's fueling the mob. And in verse 28, it says, they cried out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law. In this place, speaking of the temple. Well, first of all, he's not, and nor is he not, and he isn't nor did he. So what's happening is he's, they're, they're adding stories based on rumor and innuendo and things that they had heard because there is great fear of what Paul is teaching. And there is a great division about this man who was a Pharisee of Pharisees and a leader against the church who is now a, an apostle of, Christ, of God, apostle of Christ, moving for the church. And so they say this, they scream this out, and I dare say that those that are there to worship on this Feast of Pentecost as the place is crowded are not asking for uh, background checks, nor are they saying, where did you hear that? All they're hearing is, hey, all of our brothers, this guy is a bad guy, let's get him. And they get him. They jump in, the mob, it didn't take long. It says continually, moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So not only are they developing a mob mentality to take Paul out of this world because they don't like what he's teaching, they don't like what he's sharing, they don't like any of the mission of Christ because they see Christ as not the Messiah, but they're also making up stories because they saw him come into the city with a Gentile, a Greek, and they're saying, 
We've seen him. He brought this Greek guy up here to the temple, to the holy place, and has defiled it. Now, some of you have been to Jerusalem. Some of you have been there with me. Others have been on trips as well. And you'll know that the temple no longer exists, but that facility location is there. The Dome of the Rock is located there. And on that temple mound, there is the western wall, which remains. Many still call it the Wailing Wall, and and many who call it the Wailing Wall are wrong, because it's not called the Wailing Wall. It hasn't been called the Wailing Wall since the 60s. It's the Western Wall. It's an outdoor synagogue, and and I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it is a place that is cordoned off where there's like two-thirds of the area there is allowable for men to go and pray at the wall. Now, these are men, born men, who identify as men. It doesn't matter whatever they're thinking. They're men. Real men get to go there, and real women go over to the other area. Just want to make sure that's clear, because they don't get to pick and choose. The women's area is a little smaller. Women aren't allowed on the men's area. Men aren't allowed on the women's area. And some might say, well, that's not very fair. But, you know, uh, you didn't make the rules. That's how it is. And it's not unlike at the time of Christ, at the time of Paul, there were areas in the temple itself or in the temple mound where Jews were allowed. And then there was a small area where some Gentiles could go, but they weren't allowed in that sacred area. So there's the lie. He brought a Gentile to our area and has defiled it. Truth is, he never did. But it didn't matter. Because if you can tell people a lie and they'll believe it, because people believe lies before they believe the truth. I don't know if you knew that. And they believed it. And the story gets crazier and crazier as we go. Lies were told. Mobs were fueled. Chants and marching and harm to Paul was occurring. He was the target. And it was a madhouse. It's hard to imagine a group of people storming a large, historic, beautiful building with intent of harming someone, but that's what happened. I don't know if you can even imagine that happening. But it still happens sometimes because mobs are mobs. Leave it to the pagans to rescue the the, the man of God from the religious people. Look at this in verse 30. All the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him. I hope you caught that. They're not seeking to change his mind. They're not seeking to slap him on the wrist. They're not seeking to tell him to quit talking about this Jesus. They're not seeking to kick him out of the temple mound until he has done penance so he can come back. They are seeking to remove him from the planet. They want him dead. That's what they want. This is the religious group. They were seeking to kill him, and word came to the tribune at the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Can you imagine that you're the, the military leader assigned by the occupying army of the day to be there, and, and, and you are just kind of doing your work, and you know it's a feast, so you've already added extra officers or extra military guys in the city because the crowds are going to increase, but you're not expecting this story, and all of a sudden, here comes a soldier, runs up to you and says, sir, sir, you won't believe it. It's a madhouse at the temple. We've got to go, and it says immediately, He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when he saw the tribune and the soldiers, or when they, the group did, they stopped beating Paul. Well, you would stop beating Paul too, because if he's taking more than one centurion, then a centurion oversees a thousand soldiers. So it's likely 2,000 soldiers have just arrived on the scene. And if you are the subject of why they're there, you might probably stop as well. Because something is happening in their city that they're occupying and they're trying to keep the peace and this is a mess. So the soldiers rescue him. He's beaten and shaken, Paul is, but he's still alive. The noise was deafening, so much so that the soldiers took Paul into the barracks so they could hear what had actually occurred because it's one of those things where he shows up, the tribunal shows up and he goes, what's going on here? And all of a sudden, everybody's telling him. You ever been in the, you know, everybody is telling him. 
right? It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like uh, a fight on the playground at recess. And the teacher comes out and says, what's going on? And every kid's doing that. And you're just trying to figure out the truth. So he says, Paul, come on in. So they take him in. They find out what's going on. And it's a mess. It's a righteous mess. But that's the story. But there's something more that, that rather than it being just a historic account of a mob, and, a mob that took place in Pentecost and the, and the, and the confusion between the, the historical uh, uh, Jewish uh, people who would abandon, did not want to believe in Christ and those who had come to know Christ and the battle against Paul and his messages and the battle against the church and what is happening, there's something deeper here that applies to every church today, even really to every believer. The first thing you have to ask is, what fueled the mob? Well, you know, the devil, I get it, the enemy, yeah, he's always doing that. He's always adding, adding kindling that fire of division. That, that's easy to see. But ultimately, what was fueling them was a great fear. They were afraid because things were changing, and they were afraid of how they were changing. They didn't like how they were changing, and they were, didn't like the fact that apparently they didn't get a vote because it didn't matter what they thought. Christ has come, and he has died, and he has resurrected, and the church has been born. And they didn't necessarily like that. A great offense seasoned with great fear created a movement resulting in great harm. So what do we learn from this today? The first thing we need to, I think, acknowledge is that systems don't save. Systems do not save. The, the Jewish system of life was built on the law and the prophets, and it was good. God said so. The Ten Commandments were offered by God to his prophet Moses, and they were delivered to the people, and it was right, and it was good, and they are still right, and they are still good. But over time, the religious leaders looked over that and decided, as Pharisees began to do, that ten wasn't enough, so they kept adding more commandments to the commandments to kind of like bullet points under each one. So where I've read one place, it said there may have been up to 500 of those. This is how we are. We, we, we tend to look at that and we add rules. And the rules that were added were not added to protect God's people from falling into sin, though that may have been what was said, but they were ultimately added to constrain God's people into a system of rules for the purpose of control. Christ came not to abolish the law. He came, as his own word said, to fulfill the law. We know this. Yet it is clear that the religious people of the day who followed the law were comfortable in their ways, falsely believing the system saved them, adding more rules. We at our church have, a, have done weddings in the past. We don't do as many weddings anymore. It's primarily because we don't have a center aisle and brides don't like that. But nonetheless, we thought about decorating it like a barn, but thought we'd get more, but we didn't do that either. But we have a wedding book if you, get a, if you get married in our church. And that wedding book has dozens of pages in it. And that wedding book started out 20 plus years ago with just a few pages in it. But now it's got dozens of pages in it. You know why it has dozens of pages in it? Because after every wedding, another page is added. What not to do. What's not allowed. Where are the Weigels? Why, you know, this is why we can't have uh, uh, candles on the stage because uh, Brian and Gretchen's candles caught on fire and we almost burned the building down years ago. It, there is a video somewhere. We tried to make money off America's Funniest Videos. We could have paid the building off for early if we'd have sent that in. You know that guy. So there's a rule in there. It was in there. I think I finally took it out. You can't have pizza in the upstairs restrooms. Did you know that? Now, I know many of you are thinking, well, why would I want pizza in the upstairs restrooms? It really doesn't matter. But I'm telling you, if you tell me I can't have pizza in the upstairs restroom, you know what I want to do? I want to eat pizza in the upstairs restroom. No, well, not really. But 
That's in the book. Why is that in the book? Because some, I don't know who it was. Maybe it was you. You had a wedding here and all your bridal party sat upstairs and ate pizza and went to the restroom and left the crust on Sunday morning. Nasty stuff. Put it in the book next week. This is how you add rules. We'd like to do this at our wedding. Well, you can't do that. Oh, why can't you do that? Because in 1985, someone else did that. And ever since then, we can't do that. You add rules, you add rules, you add rules, and, and, and you start living in the system. Systems aren't necessarily bad, by the way. They're not sinful. But systems do not save. Secondly, you need to know that traditions do not transform. Traditions are not necessarily bad either. I like traditions, but traditions are not transformative. Systems don't save and traditions don't transform. We, we love our traditions. Some of you, anybody here a Gator fan still after yesterday? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody trying to contact the AD saying, let's never play a Bulldog team ever in the history of of existence again? Okay. Um, So I've been to a couple of Gators games, Gator games, and and there's this uh, Mr. Two-Bits thing that goes on, right? Now, Mr. Two-Bits is no longer with us, so now we have honorary Mr. Two-Bits, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're not missing much, so let me tell you. It was apparently some old guy in a tie that would go out and and go two-bits, four-bits, six-bits. Am I right? Is that what he did? And everybody would go crazy because it's the tradition. Fortunately, they've upgraded to Tom Petty, but nonetheless, traditions are good. You go, to, you go to Tallahassee, and everybody's cheering on the Braves, so it's an amazing thing. Every school, every team, you go to Jaguars, I mean, Duval, so we're doing that now. We don't know what, I, we're at the game, we're at the game, and all these Buffalo fans are going, what is Duval? I said, we don't know why we yell it. It's the name of the county. I live in Clay. It doesn't sound, Clay, it doesn't sound right. And the Buffalo guys are going, so you're screaming the name of your county? And I'm like, yeah, I know. (laughs) And they're looking at each other like, we live in Erie County. It doesn't quite work, does it? Erie. No. But we have a cheer. It's a tradition. And then we move those chains, move those chains. You know, we do all that stuff. So sports teams have traditions. Clubs have traditions. Churches have traditions. I mean, there's probably nobody here that couldn't tell you we're going to sing three songs, do an announcement, and then have a sermon and be done. I mean, you know the order. There's no shock on how anything's going to happen on a Sunday morning. You may not like it, but it doesn't surprise you anymore. You grow up with traditions. Traditions are fine. But traditions do not transform. Traditions don't transform. So how you did something years ago is probably not going to impact your grandchildren as it did you, because that's your tradition. That's what you experienced. Traditions are good, but they don't transform. Traditions at the holidays, Christmas is coming up, and everybody has family traditions. Some of you, some of you, uh, we're going to, you need to repent because you're already listening to Christmas music. It's not even Thanksgiving. You're you're wrong. The Lord, I prayed about it. The Lord told me to tell you, stop, and um, I know, I know, I always go, well, I'm going to sing a Thanksgiving song. I know there aren't really any, but nonetheless, just hold on to your Mariah Carey for another two or three weeks, please. But Christmas traditions, I remember I was doing premarital counseling for a couple, and it was back in, it was in the falls many years ago, you wouldn't even know who they were, but I got the, 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 the bride and the groom, the, the fiancés, right, they're not married yet. And I just asked this question, I said, hey, what, what are you going to do at Christmas? And she starts going into, well, on Christmas, we always go to grandma's house on Christmas Eve, and then we go to the other grandma's house on Christmas Day, and then we get up, we open one present on some Christmas Eve night, and, and I just went through this whole thing about what happens on Christmas. And I looked at him, because this was her talking, and I looked at him, and he went, <laughs> and I'm just, because it's one of those, it's one of those uh, premarital counseling things where it's kind of like a grenade, you just kind of throw it there, and you just, 
We'll see how this one works out. And then, and then I said, well, what, what are you going to do? He says, um, we always go to the mountains and get away from family on Christmas, have for the last 15 years. <laughs> and I just sat back and said, how's that going to work? You haven't talked about that, have you? No, you will. <laughs> and so I, I didn't really have any advice. I just basically said, just make both of your parents angry, start new traditions, and everybody will get over it. And then all their parents are mad at me now. So that's how that worked out. <laughs> Traditions don't transform. Third thing, r- routines don't restore. Routines are not bad, but ruts are. And doing the same thing over and over again just because we're supposed to, expecting nothing is not restorative. Doing new things just because they're new, by the way, and trendy is not good either. Just because something is, is, is routine doesn't make it bad. And just because something is new doesn't make it good. But routines do not restore. And the religious legalists get angry when things are not done the way we've always done them. And the traditionalists lament the old ways, which may not be bad at all, believing that everybody, everybody should be moved, just as moved and motivated as they were by the traditions that they've held for many t- years. And the mob at the temple, that Jewish group at the temple, supposedly there to worship, think about this, there was a worship experience that ended in a mob. It was... It was a group that was so angry, and anger fueled by fear, by the way, that they were willing to break a commandment in order to justify fulfilling one and not fulfilling it ultimately anyway. They're going to murder a man in order to bring honor to God. How does that work? It doesn't. I fear that that, that, that what is happening there is they're relying on tradition and systems and routines And that's why they're missing what God is doing. I fear that many in the church today give lip service to spirit-led transformation and renewal while holding on to man-made systems, traditions, and routines, hoping for us to get back to the way it was. But empty religion is empty regardless when it is. And it makes no difference in a life. As I read this portion of Acts, I kept thinking of how a people group relying on systems, traditions, and routines would soon be shown how empty it was. All this took place at the temple The book of Hebrews hasn't been written yet. It's going to be written. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we don't know who the author is, and that debate is is unimportant, by the way. But we know it's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. It is God's word, without error, immutable, and for us. And it is written with an audience of Hebrew believers in mind, helping them understand how Christ is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. But it was written in 68 And I don't know if you know why that's important, like 68 AD, 65, 68 AD, is because in 70 AD, something happened in Jerusalem that would change the face of of Judaism up to this day. Because that's when the temple was destroyed. The temple they were fighting about, the temple they had a mob about, is not even going to be there. And you say, well, that's because the evil man came in and the Romans came in and took it out. Let me just remind you that it wouldn't have happened had not God designed it. God took the temple out every time the people of God had been disobedient. And he took the temple out in 70 AD. And I know there's a whole group of evangelicals who are donating money to agencies to get the temple rebuilt for some reason, forgetting that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You don't need the building. So, so you know, just kind of, do yourself a favor and quit following John Hagee online. Now, just stop it. Stop it. The system, the tradition, the routine was upended by God. 
And that message needs to resonate with us today. Because some are putting their faith in their systems of how they do church. Or their traditions of how they've been religious. Or of their routines of their every seven day gatherings. All good. But not the ultimate. See, church, we have the answer. Christians who are in the room and online, you have been saved. If you are a child of God, you have been saved. You have been redeemed. You have been transformed. You have been restored. Not because of your systematic good deeds and your commitments to the routine of religion, but by the blood of Christ alone and the power of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Paul is having this all take place during the Feast of Pentecost, but there's another Pentecost story in the same book if you go back to chapter 1. And at that Pentecost story, Peter stands up. It was a few years prior, obviously. And in verse 38, it says, Peter told them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Often Baptists shy away from talking about the Holy Spirit, afraid someone's going to call you a Pentecostal. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and he seals you, and he never leaves you. So you don't become an unchristian. You're a Christian. If you truly are a Christian, you don't get unsaved. You don't have to get baptized 15 times in your life. You receive the Spirit of God. You surrender to him. You repent of your sin, and he transforms you, and the Spirit indwells you at that moment. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not some secondary gifting that takes place sometime after you got saved. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, Baptists believe it actually happens and it occurs at the very moment of your salvation. And it is not made evident by you speaking in tongues necessarily either. But it is real. But the problem isn't that many of us don't have the Holy Spirit because he's promised never leave us. But it's that many of us are just are not filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's different. That's different. And Acts, he references receiving the gift of the Spirit of God. And today, God is calling some, I believe maybe many, to repent. Repent of casualness in your faith, of our faith. Let me just confess a sin to you. Often on Sunday morning, I come to church expecting nothing, just so you know. I expect to get through the routine. I expect the three songs and the sermon. I expect the Wi-Fi to be up and then be down. I expect offering boxes to have a dollar or two in them at the end of the day, but I rarely expect a movement of the Spirit of God. And you guess what happens just about every Sunday? I rarely see a movement of the Spirit of God. And exactly what I expect takes place. And I apologize for that. And I confess my sin to you and to our Lord for having such low expectations for an eternal sovereign God that I think church is just going to be an hour before we get to lunch. And then we get on with our week. If that's all we are, we're nothing but a club anyway. And so you wonder, you know, why, why are all our stories in the past? Maybe it's because we're not being filled with the Spirit in the present. And so all of the movements of the Spirit of God that have taken place through First Baptist Orange Park are historical, not current. And for that, I confess. But you know, the church suffers not because God's left the building, but it does suffer when we have quenched his spirit 
and no longer believe he's enough. Therefore, we expect little and we receive little, and when we repent little, very little happens, but we live our lives well, at least comparatively, as we are satisfied with status quo. Apparently, believing God has done such great things, he doesn't have to do them again. And so the message of today is less about a mob in Jerusalem beating up on Paul and more about what motivates a mob to put their faith in systematic religiosity rather than the living God. And I don't want to fall down that trap. So church, let's pray together as we leave the building but remain the church. Father, there are those in the room and online today that perhaps need to do as I have done and repent of the casualness of faith to such a degree that such low expectations are met on a weekly basis because we just believe you've done everything you're going to do. And we're just biding our time till we get to our own funerals. Father, forgive me for that. Forgive me, Father, for having those low expectations. Forgive me, Father, for sliding into a routine that looks more like a rut than I want to admit. And renew within me and fill, the, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I know I'm saved. I know I don't lose it. I know the Spirit is with me always. But Lord, many days I just do my own way of Christianity rather than surrendering to you. Maybe that's true for many here. So for that, I repent and I pray that you will lead our congregation, our church, our membership to a, I don't know, to an unheard of moment of corporate repentance that will lead to a moment of spirit filling that changes us and changes this community and changes this world for your glory. And for that we ask. Some are saying we need revival. Maybe that's the case. I just know we need you. Bless us this morning for those that are believers. May we be renewed. For those who are not Christians, may today be their birthday. And they may repent of their sin. Surrender to you, receive a new name that is child of God, and begin to walk by faith. May it happen now. In Jesus' name.